Okay, good afternoon everyone. Um, I'm delighted to welcome uh, back to uh, Oxford, back to the Reuters Institute, Mel Bunce. Mel uh, did her doctorate here in Oxford on uh, foreign reporting in Africa, mm -hmm. fair yep, yep. foreign correspondence in Africa. Uh, she's now senior lecturer at Sydney University, where she teaches on global media and particularly on uh, journalism in and about Africa. And uh, it's a delight to see you here. So, Mel, over to you. Uh, thanks, Richard. Thanks, everyone, for having me. Uh, I was just saying before um, we started how wonderful it is to be back here. While I was doing my PhD, I used to come every week to the seminar, and I got so much out of it, especially the diverse views of the journalists that were here. Um, so it really genuinely feels like a privilege to get to come back and speak. Um, so I'm going to try and not take up too, too much time so that there's uh, lots of time for conversation and discussion afterwards, and looking forward to hearing your, your thoughts. Uh, what I'm generally going to speak about is the international news coverage of Africa and how it's changed, uh, in particular over the last two decades. And I'm drawing on two, um, two kind of bodies of work to talk today. And the first is, uh, as Richard mentioned, my PhD studies. I did research on foreign correspondence in Africa, and that was field work in uh, East and West Africa, in Kenya and Sudan. Uganda and, and, and uh, since then I've done some work in Nigeria and Senegal. So that's talking with foreign correspondents and trying to understand what's shaping their work, kind of economics and politics and the technology um, that informs their work. And also big crises that have broken out and following those news stories. So I was lucky, not lucky is not the right word, but I was in Nigeria after the Boko Haram kidnapping. So that was a giant media story I could kind of watch take place similarly in Darfur while that was a, a conflict. So that's the first um, thing I'm kind of drawing on. And the second thing is that we've recently um, have been a co-editor of this book, Africa's Media Image in the 21st Century, uh, which I co-edited with Suzanne Franks, who's the head of journalism at City, uh, and also Chris Patterson, who's an academic at Leeds. Um, and we tried to um, bring together a bunch of academics, but also journalists and practitioners to think on the news coverage of Africa. And it's actually, um, this slide is going to work, it is itself an update to this earlier book uh, by Beverly Hawkes, written in, that was published in 1992. And this book by Beverly Hawkes is really a touchstone for a lot of people that work on Africa's media image and news coverage and foreign reporting. Uh, brought together very kind of leading research and it became, you know, in my PhD it was something I referred to and lots of people have read it and talk about it still to, to you know, for, for many, many years. And yet, having been published in 1992 and being based on research done before that, it was, you know, reflecting a world where the Cold War had hardly just ended, where there was no internet or social media to speak of, um, where the economic model for journalism was still in relatively good health. So, so many things had changed, we decided to do an update of that book. Um, and we got lots and lots of original research, but also lots of journalists. And it's, it's one of the main focuses of it is changes that have taken place uh, in, in those two decades. So I'm going to kind of pull on some of these things today and really just tease out three general themes I think that I'll talk about. Um, one is how news coverage is changing, how the content of the news has become a lot, lot more positive and how some of the topics have changed. I'll talk about how who it is that does the reporting has changed. And finally, a little bit more about the social media ecology um, around it that has really changed a lot of the dynamics. Um, so I'll whiz through them relatively quickly, though. Um, so the, first, the very first thing, and this is probably the most commonly discussed issue when anyone is ever talking about the media coverage of Africa, 
And it was very much the driving concern of Beverly Hawke and all of her, her collaborators, was that international news coverage of Africa has historically been incredibly negative. It's focused on humanitarian crises, conflicts, famine, natural disasters. Um, it has oftentimes also been very um, generalizable and simplistic. People talk about it homogenizing the whole continent. Um, and a lot of this coverage is, is one of the most established findings in, in this part of media is that all of the international news kind of has had this tendency throughout the 1990s and early tw uh, 2000s. And this is just an example of, of one of the most prominent ones that has been criticized. Uh, it, it kind of constitutes what a lot of people would describe as Afro-pessimism. <clears throat> so it's not just negative now, but it's predicting that the future will be bleak and, and terrible. There's not a lot to look forward to. And some of you might have seen Chimamanda Adichie's um, very popular TED talk called The Danger of a Single Story, uh, really powerful, in which she talks about the problem with the stereotype. It's not that it's untrue in some ways, it's, this, it's that it's completely incomplete. They make one story become the only story. So this is one of the historical, historical critiques. And one of the particular, you know, we know that this is bad for tourism, for trade, um, for people's... Um, investment for but it, it's particularly concerning from the point of view of kind of intercultural understanding and one of the main issues that many many people have now identified is just how kind of neo-colonial this discourse is that it continues to um, put uh, at, present countries and issues and events within Africa as uh, lacking an agency from within the continent and needing to be saved from ex external forces uh, so many of you, um, perhaps the most famous example of this is the um, well-known reporting in Ethiopia of famine that was a headline news story. It was uh, very unprecedented in this country because it was broadcast as the first item on the news. Um, it was presented by Michael Burke. And um, it's five or six minutes long. It's incredibly long and it's very stark and emotional and it's about people dying and suffering. And throughout this whole uh, clip, not a single person that isn't European speaks. So you have Michael Burke, um, and this is Fergal Keane's quote, is kind of commenting on this and taking, taking issue with it, Fergal Keane being a prominent journalist at the BBC, um, saying that since the end of colonialism, Western correspondents have stood in front of emaciated Africans or piles of African bodies and used the language of the Old Testament to mediate the <coughs> horrors to their audience. So this is the kind of um, the idea of the white saviour going in and somehow being the ones which often depoliticizes what the actual drivers of, of the issue are and it often completely erases a lot of local efforts to help and um, all, all, all very, very problematic. So this is the backdrop um, and one of the things that we're interested in and that we've looked at in the book and in my research in particular is how this news content has changed. So this is the kind of traditional historic stuff. What we started to see at the very start of the 2010s was an absolute sea change. And many of you w will be familiar with some of these now quite well-known um, images or, or high-profile stories. The first really, really high-profile one that started all this off was The Economist cover, Africa Rising. And, but very soon afterwards, New York Times, The Time, lots of others uh, did these stories. Politicians, were, uh, these stories were tended to focus on um, economics and business, <coughs> technology, a booming middle class, 
and lots and lots of NGOs and think tanks were really kind of excited to seize this new narrative and start using it in their discourse. So we saw the IMF and the World Bank instantly holding conferences about a rising Africa. Saw Kenyatta, the Kenyan president, saying, gone are the days when the only lens to view our continent were ones of despair and indignity. Or as Michaela Rong writes uh, in our book, basically, it's fashionable these days to be upbeat about Africa. Um, and what's interesting is it's not just these high-profile stories that change remarkably. Um, we've got a content analysis in the book that looks at the real day-to-day -day reporting of countries within Africa. Um, so it's looking at all the three major newswires, um, AFP, AP and Reuters, and their coverage of the eight most populous countries. And it finds that between a big sample, big sample, more than 800 um, news articles, that between the 1990s and the early 2010s, uh, the reporting on humanitarian crises went from 17% of all news coverage down to 1%, so a huge drop. And none of that 1% talked about anything other than refugee issues. So there was nothing about natural disaster or um, health crises or anything in that, in, that, in that sample, but it is, as I say, a large sample. And at the same time, business reporting rose significantly. So it went from 20% of all reporting to 36% in that time period. So this is the day-to-day. -day. Um, we also looked at some the world newspapers, so um, New York Times, The Guardian, The Globe and Mail, and The Sydney Morning Herald to get a sense of these kind of leading um, English language publications, and found that positive reporting had risen in the period from 11% to 29% of all stories about Africa, and that the negative content had dropped from 53% to 32 So all of these are quite marked changes. And I think, the, actually for me, one of the real jump out, maybe most profound pieces of data I saw doing it, was at The Guardian in 2013, there were actually more positive stories about Africa than there were negative ones. Um, only just, it was like 46 to 45. But that's really quite remarkable in an industry where, um, you know, our trade is reporting what's wrong often, what's, what's different from the status quo, what the problems facing us are. So if you looked at news coverage of London, you would probably find more negative, you know, than positive. So it's an interesting finding. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, obviously, there's huge economic growth, GDPs went up, technology booms, many, many flourishing economies. But there's also some interesting things that happened in the media system as well. So um, one of the things that I would argue is actually this reflects media reporting almost as much as things on the ground because in 2013 there were still a lot of humanitarian crises and in the 1990s there were still a lot of economic opportunities and things like this. One of the reasons I would pinpoint is actually that we've seen as part of the, economic, the challenges of the economic model of journalism, we've seen a lot of cutbacks to general news reporting, particularly international news reporting. A, a vast decrease of foreign correspondents in Africa, and what we've seen a rise of is well-funded business journalists. We've also at the same time seen Reuters repositioning itself as quite a financial news organisation. And I think because Africa is fairly undercovered generally, these changes are actually really significant, and they ripple through that news content because people are picking up the stuff from the wires. So if Reuters changes what it does, then that really can have an effect on how you know, the newspapers of New Zealand report on Africa. Um, but that's something interesting to, to pick up on. So what we're arguing is that, to a large extent, in many ways, we've certainly moved beyond Afro-pessimism. We're not being necessarily negative about the future. Um, but we absolutely um, still have 
ongoing questions and issues to face in terms of continuing neo-colonial language. So I, we argue that we haven't moved beyond post-colonial reporting modes. And the reason we do that is in a lot of this economic reporting, um, African countries and economies are still presented as there for the taking, as full of resources that European actors might want to come and jostle for and extract. And uh, this is at its most stark when we see comparisons of China um, and European powers. And there's a lot of conversations of talking about a new scramble. And the idea of that is, is just a throwback to all of these problematic early news coverage um, where we're kind of denying local agency and we're coming in as white saviours. I think we can see continuation. So there's a lot to talk about in terms of how the content is changing. Um, but I wanted to, to, to move on it slightly briefer to talk about the two, two more things. And one is the way that, as I mentioned, that journalism and who the journalists are is changing. And finally, the, the social media. Because these, I think, and would probably argue, uh, have a greater potential to transform the long-term content of news um, than, than, than what we've seen. So the first thing to say about the journalists, these are some of the current high-profile, well, recent at least, some of them are no longer reporting, but uh, very recent high-profile foreign correspondents working in Kenya. Um, does anyone notice any demographic similarities <laughs> between these uh, guys? Right, so um, these are certainly the ones that are, are better known, right? These, this is uh, New York Times, Washington Post, Guardian, Times, Daily Telegraph, Economist. These are their correspondents. Um, and they still, at these publications in particular, have a very traditional reporting model still, where they, although they're, they're poorly resourced, increasingly poorly resourced, some of them, uh, are still generally posting European or American men, for some reason, uh, to Africa, primarily in Nairobi and Johannesburg, to report on the, the continent for a home audience back home. So these are the, this is probably what most people think of when they think of foreign correspondence. And this, in some ways, has remained surprisingly stable, that this is still the model that, that those um, publications are using. But what we're seeing outside of those publications, and remember, these, these guys, that's... That's it for a very big continent for these publications in some cases. So um, it's, they're a real minority in terms of who's actually doing the day-to-day -day reporting. The real important players are the newswires um, uh, who have a correspondent in every country and ha who are generally often the only ones present when something takes place. Now those <coughs> newswires and um, a few other handful of broadcasters, BBC World Service and some other newer ones who I'll get onto in a second, uh, they're the ones that are present when things are happening and interestingly what is happening there is the demographics are changing radically. More and more those news organisations are hiring local journalists to do their reporting. So someone who grew up in Uganda is doing the reporting on Uganda for Reuters um, and so on and so forth, all of these publications in all of these different countries to a large extent. Um, that raises some really interesting questions. Um, oftentimes, in my research anyway, I've found that um, locals are usually much better positioned to understand what's going on and speak language and have access that any foreign correspondent would be incredibly envious of and are doing oftentimes a much, much better job. Um, and a lot of people were very excited about this maybe being a big uh, shift that would help us address some of those neo-colonial issues. Um, maybe we'd get these localised perspectives pushing back a little bit. We'd see African events and issues through a more localised lens. Um, but actually what we're seeing, to some extent, I'd say in my research, is that they're still, 
very, very constrained by the requirements of the audience, the editors. They're still having to shape news events in terms of what will interest someone back home. So um, they might know that the Darfur crisis is by no means the biggest issue in Sudan today, but Mia Farrow is talking about it, and so I will be sending a news story about that. So these same pressures there mean that there's not perhaps as much room to push back as, as we might have hoped, or, well, depending on your position. Um, in some ways, what seems to be more exciting um, for a lot of commentators is the new outlets that are reporting, because they have different audiences and, and different forms of economic pressures or, or issues facing them. And there's been a lot of research done now on Al Jazeera as a voice of the global south, telling stories through a different perspective, um, really specifically trying to go and talk to citizens about how their lives are affected. And also, um, their audiences are often in the countries they're reporting on, which I think can make a really big difference. Um, so I talked to ones who would tell me that, you know, they were actively trying to um, uh, make sure they, that their reporting wasn't exacerbating conflict, for example, because they didn't want to upset anyone locally who would consume the news. That's a very different approach from traditional foreign correspondents who would be like, here is a conflict, I'm going like, to really focus on that conflict. Um, so um, doing things differently. CCTV and other Chinese media are incredibly well resourced and are some of the only news organisations really, really expanding um, their foreign correspondent networks in Africa. And we're starting to see lots of interesting research, we've got some in here, about um, how they are reporting slightly differently. And there is um, a few different things going on. There is uh, a slight focus, a slight greater focus on economic activities on the continent, if you're, if you're watching CCTV English. Um, there's also a slight avoidance of conflictual content. This is what some of our early research is telling us. So. Um, uh, sometimes talked about as a kind of form of consensus journalism, where you're not trying to ruffle feathers quite so much, so it might be um, different kinds of news content. But what's, I think, significant is we're seeing this kind of self-to-self -self, um, news flows, which is kind of exciting academics who have worried for a long time about European and North American media dominating. Um, in addition to this, we're seeing new funds for... Um, forms of journalism that uh, we didn't have before, and in particular private foundations. So uh, we see foundations like the Gates Foundation stepping up and having a huge amount of grant money available for journalists who want to do stories, and that in its turn is also having an impact on news content because they oftentimes are funding specific topics and sometimes even specific angles on those topics. So not only are they funding health journalism, but they want to hear about health journalism that is doing good. They want some success stories um, and, and, and some impact stories. And Heba Ali, um, who's a contributor in the book, she's the manager of the Iran Newswire, which is a humanitarian newswire that used to be part of the UN. Some of you might know of it. It's become independent and it's struggling to get its funds from private philanthropy and foundations and grants. And she says that one of the challenges is that they want to do straight reporting, but a lot of the funding bodies out there are looking to fund journalism that is yay, success story, five great things that were solved in the cholera fight yesterday, these kind of stories, that they, that's not what they're about. So that's one of the kind of other parts of the media landscape. So very finally then, um, I just wanted to touch on how new media is changing things. Um, it's not that new anymore, but I think that we're still, still kind of understanding how it's, how it's playing out with journalism. Um, 
obviously one of the really interesting and exciting things in terms of Africa's media image generally is that it's meaning that um, a lot of uh, people are able to speak directly to audiences without going through professional, um, without being mediated by professional storytellers. So um, Sean Jacobs, for example, has set up um, the website Africa as a Country, which is very, very popular and lots of people get their news from it now, he's contributed to the book. Um, but also, and, and also uh, we see platforms like Instagram, people being able to tell their own story. But what I'm also quite interested in how this is changing what professional journalists do. And we're starting to see um, examples and starting to see more and more research that's showing us that foreign correspondents are increasingly aware and sensitive to their lo the local community and the country where they're based. So those traditional models of reporting that I talked about before, you go to a country and you send your news back home, you're always thinking about back home. You weren't thinking as much, this is what we see in the research, about people, the people around you and the communities around you. Uh, Twitter has really, really changed that. And we first noticed this um, when something happened in 2014 that launched the hashtag someone tells CNN. Um, and basically, um, I'll give you a full history, but there was election violence in Kenya in 2008-9, which was very dramatic and very traumatic for a lot of people. Um, and it became part of the, um, the, but the news coverage of it was very dramatic very, very dramatic, and a lot of people have criticised it. Many years later, there was an attempted terrorist attack in Nairobi, and CNN actually used the same banner that they'd been using, or a very similar kind of background, suggesting that there was violence across all of Kenya when there was this discreet um, incident. So there was this tweet um, uh, that said, you know, this is irresponsible, someone tell CNN, and it just took off. And it was so popular, people, and, and actually hilarious as well, lots of satire. Someone tells CNN how stupid they are, and you know that Africa's not a country, and all of these things, and really playful. But what was really interesting to note was that the pressure was so stark that CNN first apologised and then took it down off their website. Um, and since then, we've seen this happen several times more. It happened again when, oh, uh, actually that's a slightly different one from what I thought it was, but... Um, I actually don't know what happened to Fox News after this, but they certainly got a lot of slack on Twitter. Um, they used the headline, Pope visits war-torn Africa. Again, this, again, this you know, hugely old-fashioned notion that the country, you know, the continent is somehow a con country and that the whole place is war-torn. Um, huge amount of slack. CNN also, when Obama finally went to visit Kenya, reported that he was visiting a hotbed of terrorism. Um, and they got, I mean, the tweets on that were hilarious. I recommend you look them up. They were just pictures of people eating sushi, <laughs> being like, you know, is this the hotbed of terrorism you're looking for? <laughs> um, you know, the skyline in Nairobi, you know, giant skyscrapers, this is not, you know. Um, and that one, again, resulted in the story being taken down. Um, and then just last year, some of you might have seen this one, a woman called Louise Linton uh, wrote this book called In Congo's Shadow, and it was featured in the Daily Telegraph, How My Dream Gap Year in Africa Turned Into a Nightmare. It was instantly pointed, it was quite weird from the start because she was actually in Zambia, so it's not clear <laughs> where the headline came from. But, um, so she, uh, instantly people started pointing out errors in her reporting. No, it wasn't even her account. 
um, that she had claimed that there were um, events took place that never took place, um, that even scenery that doesn't exist in Zambia, people were alleging that she had kind of made all of this up. And eventually the Daily Telegraph pulled down um, this story as well and issued an apology. Um, fun fact, uh, Louise Linton is now engaged to the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States of America, because uh, the world is a really strange place right now. Um, so anyway, my point is not to say, oh look, people can complain, people can fact check. I think this, we've always had these kind of things taking place. What I think is more interesting, not so much in the Linton case, but certainly CNN, Fox News, is that they're becoming these correspondents, you know, you imagine they're the ones with the Twitter feeds that are getting overloaded. Um, they're becoming more responsive and aware of responsibility to local communities. Um, and Toussaint Nothias writes in, in the book about this, interviewing foreign correspondents. They talk about not, you know, really thinking hard before they publish because they don't want to um, ruffle feathers or so on. It's not, um, I, I personally, I don't think it's anything like censorship at all. I think it's just about people being more sensitive to how they'll be perceived. Um, so that's a really interesting way in which traditional reporting has also been um, slightly disrupted. Um, so those are the three points I was going to make, and um, I think it would be great to just have plenty of discussion. I'd particularly love to hear if this resonates at all with different regions that you're familiar with, or if you sure disagree with anything I've made, you know, points sure I've made. No, that's fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, can I get this underway?